Hi, I'm Deb Crow, and I want to welcome you to Season 3 of Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. This is a podcast where we connect, learn, and laugh together with authentic and courageous leaders from all over the globe. You will learn from leaders you haven't even met yet. You will gain new tools to add to your leadership toolkit. Leadership belongs to all of us. It's not measured by stature or title. So please pull up a chair and listen in. This is the Heart Centered Leadership Podcast. It's interesting how you cross paths with people. And I have been watching both of these gentlemen for a number of months on LinkedIn. I've connected with them. I've commented on their post. And we've supported each other back and forth with different comments and support about all kinds of different elements to leadership. So I've invited them both on the show today. We have the founder and president of Keen Insight, Wayne Nelson. And then I also invited Monty Peterson, who is the principal of the CDA group. And these gentlemen combined together have decades of experience. We are going to talk all things leadership today, surrounded with heart-centeredness, of course. But some of the topics that they want to get into, I think you're really, really going to enjoy. So pull up a chair and help me welcome Wayne Nelson and Monty Peterson. Okay, so here we are. It's always fun to have two people on the podcast, especially when I know we're going to have some fun. So I've let the listeners know who you are in the name of your company. I'm going to let whoever wants to go first chime in. Tell our listeners a little bit about your story and how you two came about working together. So you're waiting. So I guess I'm going first. All right. So I am I am Wayne Nelson. I have a, a company called Keen Insight, and we formed Keen Insight at a point in time when we were really frustrated with working with strategy, and we created a company really just focused on managing execution within organizations. And Monty was actually a client of mine for a while, and at a point when he left that company. Uh, he called me up and said, when it, 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 we were licensing things to uh, outside consultants, and he said, hey, I want to get into this consulting thing. And that that's kind of what started it. But what really started it was uh, we, did, we did some work together when he was uh, he was running a um, one of the locations for a client that we had. Yeah, and as, as I look back on that, Wayne, it, it, was a, it was really the best decision of my life as I think about it. I mean, having gone through a full career of working for in one industry with, with two major, you know, corporate giants, you know, getting out of that. And then, and then all of a sudden understanding that, that there is a better way to manage and lead people and effectively get results in your organization. I just, I just spent a 38 year career and I didn't know it. So meeting Wayne was real, uh, a, a godsend just in terms of, you know, putting light to what I had just kind of gone through and, and really what I wanted to do going ahead. So we, we sort of, gathered around this idea of execution and, uh, you know, I've, I've been one of Wayne's principal consultants, but we've also kind of been doing some work in terms of trying to scale the organization and do some, do some new things. So that, that's been exciting too. Well, and I, my leadership questions are, are going to get into that, but I'll tell you what I love about this as the host of this show. 
My definition of heart-centered leadership is honoring your connection with people. And that's what you both did. And that's why you came together. And it's always fun when I get to interview two people. And as much as you've come together, you still have your own individual approach, your individual companies, your individual leadership, but they very much are connected and complemented each other. And that's why I was excited to have you both on the show. So I love that. Okay, four leadership questions are coming at you. And I'm going to let you banter back and forth, whoever wants to go first. Let's talk about leadership through the lens of execution. Now, Wayne, you alluded, you know, you were working on strategy. There was a time you had to pivot as an entrepreneur, something we all do when we own companies. Share with us how you honed in on having the lens on execution and why you made that leap. And and you both alluded that you're glad you did. What's been the biggest impression or what have you noticed the most in the work you're doing? The the story for getting there um, was kind of intriguing. We're doing a lot of leadership development and strategy and strategic planning. And in all honesty, I would love to say this was all brilliant forethought. It's a whole lot of divine intervention. And and the truth is, people laugh when I say this, but uh, I created this company because I got irritated with a couple of clients. We did all this great work on strategy and strategic planning, and I had a couple of things just come together. I was, I, I had gone and met with a client as a follow-up after, I, I think it was four or five months after we had spent a lot of time and a lot of work creating this strategy that everybody was all fired up and excited about. Went back and nothing had happened. Everybody got caught up in all the fires and the normal thing had happened. This whole strategy is sitting on the shelf. And other than some financial goals and some sales goals. Nothing was even really being tracked. It hadn't gotten through to the organization. And so I had that. And then I had another experience with, um, I was doing a lot of work with a, with a client that was a defense contractor. And every year we, we, we were doing a strategy every year, but we, we did this annual thing where you go in and you do lessons learned and then you start going into um, what the plan is for the following year. And I'm sitting in the room, and this was after that other other meeting, uh, a couple of days after. And I'm sitting in the room and listening to all these people kind of go back and forth as we're doing this thing on lessons learned. And they're bantering back and forth. And they got into an argument on something. And I was just, uh, don't do this as a consultant. But I was irritated, walked up to the front. I erased on this big whiteboard. It said lessons learned. I erased it, changed it to lessons collected. And turned around and said, hey, just pull the stuff out from last year because nothing really much has changed. And I walked out. And so that was the mood I was in, which, you know, is not great. And uh, we were sitting at dinner with my now now ex-wife, but then my wife and partner. And we were talking about some of this stuff. And I was talking about how frustrated we were. And when we went into a client meeting the next day, I had a client ask me to create a performance appraisal for him. And I laughed and I said, no, we're not going, we're doing a lot of leadership development program. We had this uh, 16 week long leadership development program that we're putting in place. He had just taken over, over this company. And he said, Wayne, I, I have to do a performance appraisal on my VP of ops tomorrow. And what they have is terrible. And I laughed and said, Randy, good luck with that. It's like, I don't believe in performance appraisals at all. I'm, I'm not going to build you one. And um, he kept asking and pushing. He's like, well, all that stuff we're talking about leadership, there should be something in there. So he, all of a sudden, we start talking about how we really should be working with 
employees. And now the leadership stuff that all the stuff, because the old style performance appraisals from the 80s were, you know, once a year, totally disconnected from everything. And it was, and most companies were doing it to check a box for HR. And that's what I didn't want to do. And we start talking about, well, how should the communication be? What should be in there? What should we be looking at? How do we get all that stuff that we're talking about in leadership in there? And really, if we're going to evaluate people's performance, it ought to be against, are we making progress on strategy? So we started talking this and putting this, and no one was talking about execution at the time. This is in December of 1999 when this conversation took place. So it was before uh, Shram and Bosni wrote execution. So we didn't even have a name for this. And so I started getting excited as we're talking about, well, okay, yeah, we can make a change. We can develop something different. He's getting excited. And I walked out of his office. It was a Thursday night. I walked out of his office at like eight o'clock. And he said, hey, I got a company meeting on Monday morning. Just go put something together and let's roll it out. So I go home and tell my tell my wife what I'd committed to do. And she um, was none too happy. And we spent the entire weekend building something totally from scratch, having no idea what we were going to do. And and the reason I think the story is interesting is had it happened a few years later when Google existed, I would have just Googled what everyone else was doing and tweaked something, some version of that and put it out. But we had to build this totally from scratch. And we didn't think anything of it, in all honesty. It's like we rolled it out. It was great. It had a whole bunch of holes in it. We fixed some, some holes and stuff. And then all of a sudden, other clients are asking. And then other consultants start asking, you know, kind of what you're doing. And it went to... 11 clients pretty quickly and had consultants coming in and we had we had 21 consultants in a group one time wanting to know what it was that we were doing. And so I'm, I'm rolling all this out. And then the book comes out in 2003. And up until then, I was mistakenly calling this performance management. And the problem is that term sort of for a while got co-opted in performance management, sort of met automated performance appraisals for a while. And when the book came out, when execution came out, it's like, wow, okay, that's what we're doing. And it really kind of took off from there where all of a sudden I'm paying attention to that's the hole we always had in strategy. We create strategy, but we don't take it down to the frontline people. People don't understand really what's needed in there. We don't equip the leaders or the employees to make the changes needed to make to deliver on strategy. We always stayed focused just at the leadership team. And it didn't go further. So we ended up creating this whole process and calling it KeenLink, which was it linked because it's a link between strategy and execution. And that that took off when we started licensing it. And we got out of dealing with strategy for a long time. We're just now starting to touch some things related to strategy again. And I still to this day believe the biggest issue in business is execution. It's not strategy. We don't lack for ideas. Any manager out there knows what we're trying to get done. Um, what we don't, what we lack is how do we bring those ideas and changes all the way down to frontline workers? How do we get them involved? And I actually think, I know it's a little bit of a tangent, but w- when you talk to clients about what kind of problems and issues they have, we kept, we kept hearing the same things. They, they would say things like, we struggle with accountability or communication or employee engagement or leadership, this very big generic thing called leadership that everybody defines slightly different, which is why we're talking, right? But they seem to use a whole lot of words that if I lump them together, really come out to be symptoms sometimes of lack of execution. 
And then uh, later in there, we were doing a lot of work with uh, a couple of uh, universities and stuff. And that's where Monty was working in a company that was actually doing work with universities. And it was great when he came on board and we made a big difference in there. And then, and then Monty, you and I met and, um, you know, when you left there, which I do agree, that was a great decision for you, by the way, (laughs) we're having more fun out here, but it just kind of took off from there. So leadership and execution tie so tightly together though, you cannot decouple them. You will never have execution without paying attention to leadership. And I actually think this is new thinking for me, but the way what we, what Monty and I've been talking a lot about lately is that we really need to focus in organizations on developing leadership bench strength. I think there's three things that we really need to have. We need to have a structured methodology that's consistent for execution. And that needs to come into place first. And the reason I say that is the way we're approaching it, you're getting everyone involved and they're writing the goals and there's performance agreements and stuff. But when you get that structure in place, then in order to make that work because of the way we have the progress meetings and stuff, leadership comes into play. And if you focus on execution, driving execution and having the systems and tools to manage execution, and you've got a strategic view that everybody's aligned and agrees on, and we focus on what I would call leadership bench strength in an organization, the output, the outcome of focusing on those three gives you a performance culture, which I think is what all of us are looking for. But I think leadership bench strength is critically important. It's not just focusing on leadership. It's developing leadership capacity within the entire organization, throughout the organization. And too often when we talk leadership, people are just thinking of the title of people being in a management position or a leadership position. And leadership is so much more than that. If you're focused on leadership bench strength, then you start examining things like how good are we as an organization at actually developing leaders internally? Because especially with small companies, I don't think we think about that at all. I think they think in terms of let's go hire people with leadership skills, but we should also be focusing on how do we develop leaders internally and how do we grow them? And that should be that that needs to be a a strong focus, and it's not. And one of the questions I ask, and it's a cliche question, right? But one of the questions I always ask people is, how comfortable are you in any leadership position? How comfortable are you leaving the company on a vacation for a month and having no contact? How nervous does that make you? And in small companies, we've got people saying they can't even go on vacation for three or four days. So we don't have the leadership bench strength to grow the organization. So that, it, that's kind of what we're focused right now. It's interesting because you talk about this benchmark and in the work that I do in, in my heart-centered leadership model is people really get stuck with this extrinsic value. And, and you said it so beautifully and I, I didn't want to interrupt you. The title doesn't matter. It's the foundation of the action and then having the discipline and it doesn't really matter what the title is. And you're right. There's a huge lack of vision and clarity and people get stuck, literally boots stuck in the mud with strategy and such a great story. And I can see your frustration of changing the words on the whiteboard and walking out to say, just go back to what you did last year 
it's another big element that I think we're seeing in business is people are so over-focused on the wrong things and then it affects how they listen or lack thereof. So Monty, I want you to to chime in here because I'd love to hear kind of your lens of of, of execution and, and what you've seen, if you want to add on to anything that, that Wayne just alluded to. Yeah. yeah. So, so we share this, um, this feeling and, and, and understanding that in order to be able to lead people effectively, you have to be able to manage them at an individual level. And, and Wayne mentioned performance agreements, which are, you know, when you talk about heart centered leadership, well, the performance agreements is at the heart of what, what it is, you know, Keen Insight does. And so, most organizations feel like they can't manage people at an individual level. They, they, they can't write customized goals that, that are really unique to their gifts and talents. And, and, and nobody really even tries. And one of the reasons they don't try is because it's just, it's a heck of a lot of work. And it takes a heck of a lot of courage for you to sit down as a manager with a direct report and kind of get them to open up and talk about what it is that you do well and tell them what they don't do well and figure out what, what the role requires and what the organization's looking for. So, so you just kind of have this, you know, this nail biting, you know, type of activity that, that, that people don't like. But in reality, if you're going to execute well, you've got to have people managed at an individual level. You've got to be able to, to work with them, collaboratively develop an agreement with them in terms of what their primary job responsibilities are and what their goals are for each year and make sure that they align not only with their peers and everybody in their circle of influence, but, but to the level above them and the level above them. So ideally, you want people knowing why they contribute to their department key, you know, a key to, or a key initiative, whatever they need to accomplish that year. You want them contributing to that so that it multiplies and, and goes on up and helps the organization achieve its strategic objectives. So it, it, it really does come down to knowing your people and investing and developing your people so that they can be their best in order to help the organization. And I think the link to that, kind of going back to what Wayne said, that's where titles are important. Because look in the last decade, how many CHROs have cropped up in companies, VP of people and culture, chief heart officer. I mean, Gary V took that off when he put Claude Silver in there. And that's all she does is ask those tough questions and looks after, you know, a thousand plus employees. But the beauty is when she meets with them a year later, it's a much different conversation. So it's like having that person always readily there with maybe a talent management or HR background, but the people-centric, heart-centered approach. You know, I'm even seeing chief purpose officer now uh, cropping up. And again, there's similarly sim- similarities among titles and roles and responsibilities, but those are the people that you need to get to the level that you're talking about, Monty, so that they can report back to get to what the higher leader ups want to get to. So I find it fascinating. Okay, I'm moving on to my second question. It has permanent residency on the show. I've asked over 220 leaders this question. Tell me, both of you, we'll let you go first this time, Monty. What imperfections do you bring to your heart-centered leadership? You, you name it. <laughs> <laughs> I... I, 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 when I knew I was going to be on this sh- this program, I, I said, you know what, I'm perfect for this because I got a heck of a lot of it. <laughs> so, 
I, I think I think the hardest thing is just looking at things, you know, with, with a level of emotional intelligence, right? It's 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 like, you know, not not judging people, you know, trying to put yourself in their shoes, um, you know, ha- having having humility, understanding, you know, where people are and dealing with them, you know, from a place that you know you, you understand they're at, and then, you know, and then helping them succeed. So, you know. For for me, it's it's kind of forgetting about how I used to manage people in the corporate world, and and really, you know, looking at it just from a from a completely different perspective. Which is okay, we're we're here now. This is this is what we're trying to do. We've got to move forward. How do we, how do we do that? How can we work together to make this you know as effective as possible? And so for me, it usually just boils down to empathy and humility and candor. And just doing those things that that I didn't do a lot of in my previous career. And from an imperfection standpoint, are you patient or impatient? That that is one of my attributes. I I am fairly patient. That that's a frequent flyer on the show. So I thought I I throw it in. How about you, Wayne? Oh, I'm absolutely impatient. That's why we work together. So the issues that I run into in leadership is at times I'm way too much of a visionary. So I, we come up with these great ideas. I throw all these ideas out and, and it's that stereotypical visionary thing where it's like, I may put four or five things up on the whiteboard as we're talking and send everybody out. I've got a clear idea of what we're doing, but there might've been five years worth of activity in what I just laid out. And I just had this happen last week. I walked in and somebody was working on something and I said, why are you working on that now? And they said, well, because you said, you know, in, in our staff meeting, you said you wanted to know this. Well, yeah, I didn't mean that for another year. I just, well, I know we can't get there now. And here they'd spent two days actually trying to figure something out. That's a long-term thing. So I don't do a good job of communicating that. Vision, the, when you get these visionary ideas and you're not, I'm not great at breaking that down into detail. I, you can make them happen, but getting them broken down to a point where it's actually manageable and allowing people to come along for that ride. So what it causes is it causes them sometimes to feel like they're not accomplishing what I'm looking for because they're not making the steps fast enough. And I didn't expect that. And I don't communicate it well enough. And then on the short-term things, the reason that's a problem is because on the short-term things, I get... I would call it impatient, and I think other people would probably call it impatient. It's I don't think that's what it is. I think I get very excited about something, so I want to get it done now, and it comes across as impatience. I, I think that's every entrepreneur and business owner on the planet, right? I, I'll join you guys there. Okay, my third question We've been talking about execution and strategy. Let's kind of shift to culture for a minute. When we look at culture and values and behavior, give us an overview of how that influences the strategy. You want to take this one first? You know, maybe share with the listeners kind of a Cole's notes. Give us like a top three kind of strategy approach because I know we could do a whole show on this. So what's top of mind, Monty, to start us off with this? Yeah. Well, you, you, have, to, you have to tie your culture and your values back to your strategy. 
and, and that's something that a majority of, of senior leaders and, and CEOs have a have a problem doing because if you can't if you can't keep those things top of mind inside your organization, then then basically what it, whatever happens happens, and, you, and you'll largely live by what we what we call a default culture. It's just you know whatever you're willing to tolerate, you know get, gets accepted. So I, I so I would say one of them is definitely you know being able to live your culture and, and to be able to continually keep it top of mind with your people, discuss it in the keen link system. We have, we have core behaviors and, you know, culture is a foundational element. Um, so, you know, so, so we understand the importance of that. And I think sometimes Wayne, we even struggle with having it um, visible enough. I, I would agree with that. And I think culture, culture and values um, are really important to me. And I think there is a lot of confusion around it. My belief, which I don't think is the popular belief, but my belief is that we shouldn't be focused on changing culture because culture is an outcome of other things that you do. Culture is the outcome of how we lead, how we manage, how we train people, how well we're communicating with. All of those are subsets of of leadership, getting them engaged. I think the culture is an outcome of how clear is the direction and what kind of feedback are you giving to people and how are you, how's that leadership dynamic actually working? Values do come into this. And I think there's, I think there's confusion on culture because I, I'm not a fan of um, where they're doing culture surveys or even engagement surveys. I'm I'm just not a big fan of that because I think you start asking questions and you get people thinking about it and we're doing the wrong thing. We're trying to move a number on some sort of an engagement survey instead of really paying attention to what do we do. If there are cultural issues, we shouldn't be focused on culture. We should be focused on the leadership or the management or the communication or the strategy or whatever else it is that is miscommunicating to people. Because if we have problems with culture, that's what it's about in my mind. And if you tie values into that, then I think it actually gets more confusing. In the very beginning, when we first created this whole process, there's a whole section in this that we call foundation, which is vision, mission, core behaviors, all the all the core values, all the normal stuff that you would have. And and we had core values in there. And it it occurred to me at one point, because what we're really doing is bringing everything down to an individual level. When we're we're talking execution, it happens at an individual level. What individuals in an organization do or don't do, what they get done or don't get done is what determines whether or not we ever actually achieve strategic initiatives. So it has to be brought to that level and we don't do it traditionally. We haven't done a very good job of that. And that's why we created this thing called a, a performance agreement, which is this collaborative partnership between a manager and an employee where there's a conversation in the employees, um, the employees entering goals and primary job responsibilities from the conversation. And it's an, it's an agreement between the two of them. But to give context to the goals, you have to have the, you've got to know what the company is about. So you have to have the strategy and you have to have the, the core values. And core values are really important. But to me, core values are about beliefs and aspirations of the organization. That's hard to manage individuals from. Those are statements like, we believe in this. We believe we are this. We believe in in these things. 
fantastic things to gauge. Are we headed that way? But very hard to manage from. Core behaviors at an individual level and in terms of influencing culture, I believe core behaviors are much more important than core values. And getting to core behaviors, and the reason I think there's confusion is I think there's been this mix. For a while, there was confusion even amongst, I would see people with a list of core values. Some of them are values, some of them are behaviors, some of them are competencies. Um, so it, it, and it's not that I'm being a purist, but core values have a very specific place in defining what an organization stands for and what they're about and when the impact that they're going to have. That's not necessarily meant to manage individuals. And I think in too many organizations, we don't go deep into core behaviors. Core behaviors become minimal behavioral standards within an organization. And that gets to what we tolerate, what we accept, what we reward, um, because that's things like productivity and resilience and resourcefulness and all of those behaviors that make somebody great within that particular organization. And all of those are changeable and coachable. And if you're focused on that and we're delivering on initiatives and we've got a clear strategy in front of us and we've got the uh, performance agreements, which include we're having progress meetings once a month and sitting down and talking about how we're doing, the outcome of that is culture. And if I just focus on culture, I find too many people are focused on the wrong things. We get core behaviors in place. We get very clear expectations and goals with people. We set up a structure where you're communicating often with employees from a standpoint of what's going well, what are you proud of, what do you need help with, so that real, what we all know is leadership now, not not leadership of the past. If we do all of those things, the outcome then is this culture that we're all looking for. So it, it, it's a real hot button for me. Well, but you really well done in the way you explained it because people can convey a language regardless of where they are in in the organization and culture almost gets slanted with that extrinsic materialistic. The culture is the culmination of everything you just said. And when you peel away everything, it's people, it's people centric. But if you don't have everything in that specific order, that sequence, you can't start at the culture and work backwards. It's well yeah. said, well said. I, again, we could have a whole other conversation on that, but I like the way that you broke it down. And I also wanted to say, when you were talking about being a vivid visionary, there's so many brilliant minds out there. And when they can't come back and just seed all those great ideas and wrap some discipline and structure around them, there's so much wasted, great intuitiveness, intention, and, and the excitement's there and the, the clarity's there. But again, going back to values and behavior, if you don't have the structure or the discipline, nothing's going to move the needle forward. So I'm just going to put a big stop there because that was so well done. Okay, I'm going to switch to my fab four because I knew this was going to be a, a long, good conversation. Four fun questions, just so our listeners, which are in 65 countries now, and I, I get goosebumps every time I say that. I'm going to ask a question. I don't want you to think about it. It's, the, it's those top of mind answers. So Monty, 
If I asked your family or your friends to describe you in one word, what would it be? <laughs> Probably sarcastic. Oh, I like that. Okay. Yeah. Wait, how about you? Um, enthusiastic. Enthusiastic. Well, you guys compliment each other. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so I, I know if I'm going to be engaged with you guys, there's going to be uh, some sarcasm uh, with a little bit of integrated enthusiasm. That's hilarious. Okay, wait, name a book. You could have read it at any juncture in your life. What's the name of the book and the author and, and why was it impactful for you? There's actually two. Um, execution is one because it gave a name to what we're doing now and kind of forced, uh, it, it put a name to this and validated what we're doing and set this on a path. There's another book by Stephanie Winston that I read in the 80s called The Organized Executive, which still has some of the best organizational, I don't even know if that's still out, but it had some of the best organizational stuff, which I am so weak at. I love that. I love that. And I love that Monty's looking over at his bookshelf going, hmm, which one should I pick while Wayne's talking? So Monty, which one is it? And here's here's the funny thing about it. I've I've read this book twice. <laughs> I can never remember the title, but but it's a book that I got referenced from your neighbor and our connection, David McLean. And and it's the the um I think it's the the fifteen elements of conscious leadership. You know the conscious leadership group. Correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on the on the title, but David referred that to me probably three or four years ago, and it's just. And this is what he called it. It's it's just one of those books that puts it all together for you, you know, managing above or below the line. And and it's just such a simple management model that I've taken away from that, that I, I share it often with clients and with, with friends and other people I talk to because it just makes so much sense. And um, so, so living by, the, you know, those 15 elements are, and it's not, it's not as complicated as it sounds, but just, just the whole concept of, of being a conscious leader you know, is, is, is a great thing. So that book for sure. And, and doing that with simplicity, that sounds like a great book. I know the book you're talking about and I think that's what it's called. Okay, I'm granting you both a wish and it's going to be really interesting to hear the answer to this. So let me put some context around the wish. You get to have dinner with a leader of your choice. Now this leader could be living or maybe they've passed. Who is the leader and what is the dinner conversation? Wayne, you go first. Wow. Probably the person I would most love to have dinner with would be Abraham Lincoln. That was an awful lot to manage his way through. And just to know how he thought his way through what he had to deal with. He has been named on the show quite a bit, actually. I wanted to let you know that. So that's really interesting. And that's basically the answer that some of the leaders have shared. And it, you know, kind of awestruck to, to look back in history, right? Monty, who's the leader that you're having dinner with? And what's the dinner conversation? Yeah, this is this is going to throw you for a curve probably. But but I, I would say Paul McCartney. And, and the re the reason why is here's this guy. And I think he's, I think he's like 74, 75 now, but he's been playing music since he's been like 14 or 15 years old. He's been doing what he loves and he continues to do it. 
And I, I saw him, I, I took my son to uh, one of his concerts when he was 71. And I was so impressed because here's this guy up there and he sang for two full hours before he took one break. And then it was just a short break and he came back and sang for another hour. And it's like, that's, that's how I want to live. And, and, and I guess the dinner conversation would, would focus on, you know, what, you know, what's your secret? How you, how did you find, you know, this and how it gave you so much joy that you just wanted to do it all the time. I mean, that's, I think that's what, I think that's what a lot of people would be interested in, you know, in knowing if they had, if they could go back and be granted a wish and, you know, it would be, help me to find my gift a lot sooner than I, than I found it. Well, and that's, I, I like that that's your choice because he's had such longevity and he's still so vibrant in his 70s because there's other artists in their 70s who are still trying to do it and, and they're not as vibrant. And some of them have done their last tour, yet, you know, they continue to crop up for for more last tours. But the other thing about him is he's endured so much trauma and hurt along the way and loss. And he's he's just very gracious. And I, I think music is such a universal language that kind of integrates us as a global society as a whole. And that would be a great conversation. That would be a fun dinner for sure, Monty. Well, I knew this conversation was going to be was going to be good and I I'm glad we kind of gave some inroads to strategy versus execution. So, I'm so glad that we got to get together. I I look forward to following your leadership online and and keeping in conversation once in a while and I'm going to ask you both to finish the show by finishing this sentence for me. And I'd like to hear what you both would say for this. So my last question is, heart-centered leadership is? Heart-centered leadership is, is, is all about your people. And, and in fact, in, in general, you know, leadership is about everybody else but you. You know, as a leader, you're there to elevate their success. And if you're not doing that, then, then you're not leading. You're, you're, you're a boss or you're a manager or you're, or you're dictating what, what people need to do. So without question, um, heart-centered leadership is human-centric. It's about leading your people and doing what's in their best interest so that they do what's in your best interest in return. Heart-centered leadership is about building and growing people. And what I mean by building is heart-centered leadership is really, to me, about taking our people where they are and growing them from that. It's not the measure. I heard somebody say this one time, which it, it always kind of stuck with me, is the measure of a leadership is, or the measure of a good leader is not what they're doing right now. It's where are all the people on your team five years and 10 years from now? What have you grown them into? What have you turned them into? And, you know, it's sort of like I've always looked at it. Sports always isn't always a perfect analogy, but it's not in sports. It's not the team staffed with all the superstars that always win. It's the team with the best leaders that can get more out of the team than they even thought and pulling them together and growing them. And I think that's the magic. And to me, Heart-centered leadership is meeting people where they are now and helping them to grow and build them over a period of time. And the test is, where are your people five years from now and 10 years from now? 
Thanks for joining me today on Imperfect, the Heart-Centered Leadership Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed the show today and learned some new tools for your leadership from our amazing Heart-Centered guest. And if you like the show, we would welcome a rating and review on whatever platform you listen to. And we would love to have any comments or feedback at any time. And if you want some more heart-centered goodness, head over to our daily blog, masteringtheheart.com.